Rising up a corporation is a pyramid. It's very, very difficult. But not everybody should want to rise up a corporation. There are so many jobs with great purpose that can touch people in different ways. You know, don't always aspire to move up a corporate ladder. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. It is Carly. Today, my guest is Indra Nui. Indra was the first female CEO and chairperson of PepsiCo, which she headed up for 12 years. She oversaw some of the company's most important mergers, acquisitions, and strategic pivots, like moving to more environmentally sustainable production and making more health-focused products. Indra has appeared on most influential women in business lists, multiple times, and was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame last year. And she documented her legacy running a Fortune 500 company in her memoir, My Life in Full, which is on sale now. Finally, Indra teaches leadership skills in her new masterclass, Leading with Purpose. Indra, welcome to the show. Carly, wonderful to be talking with you. I am so excited. We have been trying to to get you on the show for a long time. This is a a big get for us. So just really honored to have you on. Thank you for having me. So we are going to open the way we we like to do it every time. Lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. Are you ready? Go ahead. What is the first job you got paid for? I did a market research job in India, going door-to-door collecting information. Are you an inbox zero person? I'm a move it to the flagged email and then look at it carefully person. What is the last show you binge watched? Oh, I watched Amber Brown. Oh, what's a masterclass you would love to take? How to bake a great cake or make some great dishes. How to cook like a real chef. Are you a good chef? I'm a good cook. I'd like to be a chef. <laughs> what's your, your go-to recipe? You know, I just learned how to make an outstanding eggplant parmesan. Oh, that is like a very good staple. And it's a really, it's it's an art form, yeah. Yes. So I want to build on that repertoire and, you know, the single item repertoire (laughs) and have a list of dishes where people go, wow, this is really good. I I think if anyone can do it, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Carly. What is like your kind of go-to to unwind? Like how do you relax and sort of turn off? I do three things. I read, I'll pick up something and read it very quietly. I'll uh, put the Yankees on TV or I listen to music, all all three at the same time. Okay. What's your hype music? Uh, 70s rock. That's what I listen to all the time. Like is there a favorite band or singer? Any one of them from the 70s, all the one hit wonders, (laughs) the bands, everybody. I just love them all. All I mean, it just, it it, uh, takes me back to so many things in my youth, and they're so singable and they're so singalongable, memorable songs. What is one thing that your kids make fun of you about? They think I'm not cool enough. <laughs> is there anything specific that you do, or is it just just your your general they just, mom? They just think generally I'm not cool, and just, I'm just too mom. And uh, I think they like it, but they also make fun of the fact that mom can't you be cool once for a change. <laughs> 
It doesn't matter what it is. It could be what I wear, how I talk, what I eat or don't eat, everything. I say, God, you're so uncool. <laughs> I think you're pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can tell them I said that. All right. I want to get into it, which is talk to me, like, what were you like as a kid? If your teachers wrote a report to your parents of this is how Indra is like in the classroom, like, how would they describe you? You know, I was a kid full of life. My God, I just jumped from thing to thing. And I was always interested in something. Uh, I remember my first report card I got maybe in the first grade or the second grade in the Catholic school that I was going to the Holy Angels Convent. All the grades were good, but there was one comment in the report card that hurt so much that I worked on it for a long time. And that comment was talkative and inattentive. (laughs) (laughs) And my parents, my mother in particular, reminded me of that comment forever. So I went to work on that to say, first of all, quit being so talkative and be more attentive. And so all my life I've been working on listening skills and being able to cut back on my interventions. And they stood me in good stead. But I, you know, people would say, she's always smiling. She's full of life. She never walks. She only runs from place to place. And she brings joy wherever she goes. Because, you know, I was just, I was just a happy kid. That's a, I mean, it's a wonderful, the bringing joy wherever she goes is, is a, a wonderful way to be described. I'm curious, and we're going to get into your career, but what role did you have that where you think you learned how to listen the best? Over time, you know, whenever I got feedback that I wasn't allowing people to finish or my answer didn't quite address the question. This is, I'm talking about the fact when I was very young, I took it to heart. And I realized that I grew up in a household where the parents and grandparents in the family basically talked over the kids and many times talked over each other. So that was the culture in which I was brought up. So in many ways, I discovered that I was my parents' kid. I was my grandparents' granddaughter, and I was behaving just like them. And might have worked in my family structure, but it doesn't work in real life. Sometimes I slip back to that behavior, Carly, and my kids remind me, and say, there you go again, you didn't even let us finish. Uh, listen, and let's finish what we had to say, and then you respond. Uh, and so I think that over time, I kept watching these interactions and saying, I've got to change. And little by little by little, as I grew older and I moved away from the family, I started to change in profound ways. You came to the U.S. to get your master's at Yale, and when you graduated in 1980, you went straight into the corporate world, working for Boston Consulting Group, and it was it was a different era. You were the first in a lot of different rooms and a lot of different jobs and didn't see a lot of women in leadership positions. There's a, a story that I, I, I love that you've told around drawing a hard line of making sure to be treated with respect. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and what that was like in in environments in that era? Six years into BCG, because I was in a dreadful car accident, I joined the corporate world. And by and large, I'd say most of the corporate environments I was in uh, treated me well. I'd say I defined those environments by the 80% of people who treated me well, not the 20% of people who struggled with somebody so different around them. But there was one particular incident where the boss of the company was calling me sweetie and honey, not because he discriminated against me. That was just his language. 
And I was very, very uncomfortable with it. And I did go to him and I said, look, I know that you don't mean to put me down, but I'm very uncomfortable with the way you deal with me. And he was from the South. And he said, look, that's how I talk. And he was a very, very nice person. But I was incredibly uncomfortable, Carly. And I just drew a line and I said, I've got to leave this environment because I, I don't want to stress out based on how he calls me in front of all the men. And so I left. So that was one example of where I felt I was uncomfortable in that situation. I left. But I want to put something down. You should only do something like that if you have a safety net. If you absolutely need the job, sometimes you have to work with that person to change them rather than just walking out. In my case, my husband was working and we did not live beyond our means. Okay. I, there's so much here. So <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to pause because I have a lot of questions. Yep. First of all, the moment of having the courage, and I'm going to just make the assumption, not a lot of senior women around you to go to for advice in this job. Is that fair to say? Yep. To go to your boss or senior or a senior male and say, I don't like how you're talking to me about me. Like that in and of itself takes a lot of, for lack of a better word, balls. <laughs> that takes a lot of balls to do. And walk me through, like, were you nervous to do that? How did you prep for that moment? Had you ever like had a confrontation like that before in a professional environment? No, not really. And I, I could do it because he was not a bad person. He was actually a very nice person, a professional. Just that his upbringing, the fact that he'd never worked with women before, that's the way he talked. And I could have worked with him over time and somehow gotten him to inch his way into a different sort of behavior. But at that point, I felt uncomfortable. He was a new boss and I was uncomfortable. And in a private moment, I didn't do it in a public environment. In a private moment, I said, look, you refer to women in interesting ways. And I said, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. He didn't even realize he was doing that. And I was very gentle about it. And he said, look, I don't mean any harm. This is who I am. And I realized I can't do it. So that was one incident. And the second one was when... Wait, bef before you go to the second one, though, because yeah. you said something that I think is super important, which is that you could afford to leave and yeah. you could afford to walk away. And yeah. as you said, not everybody can do that. And somebody like who's listening right now, right now might be like, I actually like, love the company. I love, I love my job. What would your advice be? of like how to give feedback to an organization, to a boss, if there is a situation where you know that like the action is not meeting the intent, this isn't like a bad person per se, but like they're really ill-informed around how they're executing and how they're communicating. Like, what would your advice be? That's a great question, Carly. I would say that ideally work through HR. If people in HR are truly focused on human resource management, they should be having the conversation with the leader, okay? Because sometimes the conversation you have may end up not very nicely. So the best thing is for you to talk to HR, but don't do it in a confrontational way. Talk about it in what makes you comfortable or uncomfortable. Remember, I'm talking about the uh, late 80s, early 90s, when this sort of behavior was commonplace everywhere. Men talked certain ways to each other and referred to women in certain ways. Many people called their secretaries, sweetie. I could hear that. And so here I am coming into a seat of power. So I'd say that 
talk to HR. HR departments are much more sensitized these days to addressing these issues and always understand intent. You know, I, I, my father taught me something, which is to assume positive intent. So the first thing I always did was assumed positive intent, and I was justified in assuming positive intent. But it was my own discomfort. And at some point, you've got to look at these and say, this is not the intent of the person, but if it demeans you in the eyes of your colleagues, you know, then you have to decide what to do. What was the second incident that you were about to say? The second incident I wrote about in my book. That was in PepsiCo when, um, you know, I would present something as head of strategy to the division president. And a few of them would always put me down and say, I don't agree with it. This is rubbish. This is all wrong, even though they had turned those numbers in. I put up with that a few times. And then I reached a breaking point one day where I said, hey, wait a minute. These guys continue to put me down in meetings, but the CEO who's observing it has not asked them to cut it out. And about three or four meetings, I put up with it. And one day I walked into the CEO's office and said, I am going to go present at the president's meeting today where you're going to be present. But after that, I'm leaving. I'm walking out because I put up with this bad behavior now for three or four meetings and I can't take it. But I went one step further. I said, I also don't want anything from you. I'm not looking for severance. I'm not looking for bonus, nothing. I want nothing. I am just leaving. I'm walking out of the office tomorrow. Wow. And I was so upfront about it, so clear. And the president's meeting was delayed several hours. And he huddled with a bunch of people. He knew exactly who they were. And um, at the end of that evening and the next day morning, every one of the offenders were in my office telling me how awesome I was and <laughs> how they're going to be really constructive. And my boss just came to me and said, it's all taken care of. Let's get back to business. And it never happened again. Again, I could make that comment with confidence, not with anger or accusatory. I just said, look, this is what's been happening. I don't notice any reprimand from you in public because mm -hmm. it needs to happen in public. And it keeps continuing and I can't take it. I feel disrespected. That's because my husband and I decided we would live on whoever's salary was lower. Wow. So it didn't matter to me. Wait, I want to repeat. You, your husband and you decided you would live on whoever's salary was lower. Okay. Yeah. Smart. So we said, whoever it is, mm -hmm. if, you know, at, at some point he's making more than me, we live on my hmm. income because we never want to be beholden to the job. Where did that come from? Like, where did that mindset come from? I think it's just culturally, we wanted to be respected. You know, it's always a question of respect. And we realized that if we lived beyond our means or lived, or lived it up, uh, you know, we would always be worried about losing the job. So you basically worked to eliminate financial stress. That's exactly right. We saved, we eliminated financial stress, and we said we should never, ever be in debt. Everything that you're saying comes from a place where you had choice. You and your husband made the choice to choose how to live your life from a financial standpoint. You made the choice and the, had the ability to not be in debt. And I'm struck by these moments where I'm like, oh, shit, like you told that guy. And like, oh my gosh, like that moment of confidence. And I'm like clapping for you over here in my kitchen as I'm talking to you. 
how for those that might be in a different financial situation, might not have the different choices, but are looking to exercise that same moment of confidence, how would you advise them to to find that confidence, to find that courage? So I want to be very clear, Carly. When we met, we both had nothing, literally. We were broke students. Even in spite of that, when we got married, we said the first thing we're going to do is to pay back college loans. I said, you know, we should not, the country and the universities did us a big debt of service by allowing us to have loans. And we would take our paychecks. We would pay the rent because we needed a roof over our head, put some aside for utilities, pay a big chunk to the college loans because we wanted to pay it earlier than, you know, the seven years that we were given to pay it back. And then we would think about how we're going to live. We'd save some because we always wanted a rainy day fund. And then we would live very sparsely. I remember we, we would go, when my husband and I lived in Chicago, we would go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and have a huge lunch so we could have a very small dinner. And so we were so careful in managing our budgets. We saved. We didn't spend on clothes. We never took vacations. I don't wish that on anybody else, but that's how we lived. But remember the backgrounds we came from? We didn't take vacations as kids growing up. That was not in our culture. And so for us, it was easy. When did you start relaxing into your success? I don't know. I don't think Have I you? ever relaxed into my... I don't think so. I, we, we're still not, let's go do something big and brash type. Maybe we live more comfortably now. It's still the same house for more than 30 years. and. Uh, we're a, just a simple, decent couple, that's what we are. <laughs> but, I, but let me go back to your very important question. I think today people can talk about these issues, but talk about them constructively. Give the company a chance. Have constructive conversations with your HR department. Companies are very different these days, very sensitized, especially to women, diverse people. And Figure out how to make it work for both of you, especially if you like the company, you like the environment. And the only derailer is somebody you're working with who's being, you know, not respectful of you. You are known, we're known, especially at Pepsi, for having a blunt feedback style and blunt leadership style. Talk to me why that was a strength and where that caused some trouble. I wouldn't say blunt. I was direct. And... I was about the most nurturing, supportive leader. And the number of people I've mentored, I think that I, in my time, there are nine CEOs in public companies today who came from my school. And I say my school, these are people that I coached, mentored, spent hours, days with to move them to a better place. Many of them, when they're working for me, say, God, she's never happy. She's always telling us to improve. Now they call and say, when we're in a tough spot, what we say is, how would Indra approach this? And they'd write letters saying, the amount we learn from you is staggering. So my bluntness was not to put them down. It was to say to them, you have such huge potential. You're letting that potential disappear by not doing things the way I think you should be doing them. And I always gave them feedback on what they could do better, but then taught them how to do it better. That's where I spent a lot of time. I was with them, teaching them how to do things better. I would travel miles to go to people to coach them and mentor them. So I was um, 
I was a boss people um, thought had high standards, was very direct, but they loved, loved, loved working for. What do you think was your secret sauce after giving them the direct feedback to getting them to be on that journey with you to learn what you were trying to convey? Because I think a lot of people can shut down when they get to maybe feedback that feels blunt or harsh, and it might be coming from a good place, but how do you think you were able to bring these people along to be a student of you? You know, we hired the right people. Probably we had extraordinary people at PepsiCo, and we hired the right talent, we brought them in, and we brought in mature talent that could take the feedback. And the other thing is they watched other people who thrived with all the feedback. And even though it might have hurt in the short term, they'll say, God, this is the best learning opportunity I'm going to have. It's the um, case studies of other success, successful people that made people say, I want to stay with this. Look, there were about 20% of people who said, I don't want to be mentored and coached this way because I don't want to rise so fast. I wanted to have, for example, I wanted the board to have multiple choices to replace me. I wanted three, four, five deep succession in PepsiCo. And I would work hard to find the people, take them into small group meetings offsite, work with them, mentor them, get to know them on a personal level so that they knew that I cared about them as people, not just as an executive or tool of the trade. I knew their families, their issues. Claudia, I'll say one thing to you. Many of my executives, when they had big issues, personal issues, I would be the first person they'd seek out. Yeah. So I was sort of, I was way more human than anybody knew. I'm taking everything you're, you're saying in because you're touching on, for me, like areas of some of my strengths and also some of my personal areas of growth, which is like some of my strengths is that I'm really direct and like I can get to the point quickly, like hence why I co-founded the skim. Right? And <laughs> I think also like I, I like to think of myself as a, a generous person and somebody who would be there for you in an emergency. But I think an area that like Danielle and I have both, you know, struggled with is how do you have that directness without it coming off condescending or without it coming off in a way that disempowers people and actually makes them want to, to follow you? This is something you might want to ask people who worked with me. Interestingly, because I think when I worked with somebody, I started off saying to myself, I want this person to be way, way, way better when they finish with me than they are today. They're very good because they're working with me, but I want them to be so awesome. If they're a senior executive, they can take my job. If it's one of these executives assigned to me for 18 months, I want them to jump two or three levels when they leave me. So I would tell them, that's my goal with you. If you're not comfortable with that, tell me because I'll moderate my way of interacting with you. Everybody said, no, no, we want to be pushed. But I would spend hours, Carly, getting to know them and um, getting to know them as people, what made them tick, what's their learning style. I would send them reading lists. I would suggest articles that they should be reading. I would ask about their family every time. I'd get to know their issues. I would read their body language when I saw things were not going right. And so to me, it was not a uh, tough love kind of a thing. It was a, each of them is a valuable asset to this company. 
how can I bring out the best in them and retain them? So, you know, it was like the hand that slaps was also the hand that hugged. We talked to, we've mentioned family and, and referred to family a few times in this. And last year I had the privilege of attending a, a small conversation with you and, and a few other amazing women talking about the problems with lack of paid family leave and really women in, in the workplace. And actually as part of going to, to that lunch, Danielle and I were inspired to, to start our show us your leave movement. So I want to thank you for helping to inspire that. Um, you had an interesting way of being able to get it all done, which was the community that was around you and the, and the sense of family that was around you that allowed you to have the jobs and the travel that you had and also raise a family. Walk me through like actually what that looked like and how you kind of take the lessons from how you got it all done and how you advise women earlier in their careers to have the career and the family. So I'm going to talk about three things. One, what skills or issues I had that allowed me to do a lot of what I did. The second, I'm going to talk about some actions I took and then the kind of family I was born into because all three work together. And the reason I'm lobbying for change is because not everybody is as fortunate as I was on these three dimensions. Let me talk about them. First is I don't sleep much. So I have more hours in the Wait, day. Wait, stop. What do you mean you don't sleep things. much? I don't. I sleep four hours. Maybe. Have you always been that way? Yeah, I struggle to sleep. And so I can sit up reading longer times. I can do more things. You know, I can organize children's activities when they were in school. Are you tired all the time? Like I need like 10 hours. Sometimes. Okay. Sometimes. Oh my God, well, 10 not, hours. Like, like, that would be it. I, I, could, I could go like 15, yeah. honestly. <laughs> now, if there's a pin drop in my children's room, I would be the first person to hear it. Okay. So I would light sleep over the hours I slept. And uh, so that's one. You know, second, I have a decent memory. I can retain, I can read and retain a lot. And again, that was something I was born with. So that helped me out. Third, I have insatiable curiosity, Carly. When I don't understand something, I'll dig and dig and dig and dig until I understand it. So these are all the skills that I learned over time or whatever, and they came into good stead. What I did, actions I took, I married the right guy. And I have to tell you, it made a huge difference, huge difference. I didn't marry anybody looking at monies they make or whatever. I was lucky to meet somebody who was highly educated, came from a phenomenal family, and was also starting out like I was. And uh, his family was incredibly supportive, very unusual for Indian families. His family basically said to me, we want you to keep working, we'll support you, as my family did, which is highly unusual. And my husband was like, dream big, soar, I'm not going to ever, ever... Uh, hold you back. Mm -hmm. And you and I will just work together as a team and we'll figure out how to make it. It's incredibly life lucky that you had that partnership. Oh my God. I, without that, I could not have done it. And right through our life to today, we've been married 42 years. He's been that way. He is still that way. And then the third thing is the kind of family I was born into. We are from a culture where multi generational living is accepted. And we learn to respect our elders and somehow, you know, make it work. It's difficult. It's not that easy. But you know what? You just make it work because they help with the kids. They help calm you down when you come back. Sometimes they get you irritated too when you come back after long days work. But, you know, you can't have all the good and none of the bad. You have to take a little bit of both. And I think the combination of the multi-generational living 
the support I had from my family and my in-laws' family, my extremely supportive husband, and the fact that I sleep so little, I have a decent memory and this insatiable curiosity, and I had this burning urge not to let people down. So if somebody's listening and they're like, well, I need a lot more sleep, I don't live near my family, don't have a partner or not the same type of partnership or just they're both spread too thin. You can't, quote unquote, have it all and the balance and kind of a lot of the (laughs) the BS that people have always tried to say. And it's like, we all know that you really can't have it all necessarily at the same time. How do you advise younger women, especially in their careers, to sort of navigate the inevitable life changes that are going to happen to them as they're going up the track? So, Carly, they're all choices, and I'm not going to put it in very direct terms. (laughs) First, if you need your 12 hours of sleep, which many people do, okay, if you're not willing to spend an incredible amount of time learning, exploring issues, because that's what you need to do when you move up a company, then you know that you can't really move up fast. If you choose to get married and have kids, if you don't have a support structure, And if your husband is not supportive, okay, to you, there is no way you can move forward. So these are all choices. You choose to have kids. You choose to get married. Okay, so you have to figure out what job you want versus what you can't pull off in your personal life. Sometimes it worries me when people say, I want to rise to the top, but I need my 12 hours of sleep. I need my time off. I need my personal time. I am married, but my husband is not supportive of my job, and I have no family. Hell, that doesn't bode well for you because rising up a corporation is a pyramid. It's very, very difficult. But not everybody should want to rise up a corporation. There are so many jobs with great purpose that can touch people in different ways. You know, don't always aspire to move up a corporate ladder. Last year, you mentioned in an interview that you had never asked for a raise at any point in your career. And a lot of people had a lot of feelings about you saying this. What is the takeaway to that? I wrote about this in the book. Let me start off by saying I have two daughters. And the first question I always ask them when they come and talk about the job to me, I say, are you getting paid properly for the jobs you're doing? Because my fear is that there will be some pay disparities in their job. And that's not good for my daughters. It's not good for the companies that they're part of, that a certain group of people are being treated differently. So to me, pay parity between men and women or diverse people, whatever it is, for the job done is critically important. Critically important. I worked on that when I was CEO. I always will be focused on that. Let me talk about my own life. Up to the time I became president, of PepsiCo. Uh, In my earlier years, I got paid very well. But there was a brief moment in PepsiCo in my early years where I saw colleagues around me getting all kinds of stock options, and I didn't. Getting all kinds of special grants, and I didn't. And I didn't ask for it. And I tell you why I didn't ask for it. I didn't know how to ask for it. Culturally, I didn't even know how to go to HR and say I'm not getting enough because I always I looked at my paycheck and said, that's a lot of money. I never in my life thought I'd make so much money. I didn't know how to ask for it. When I became president, Steve Reinemann, who was CEO, said, hey, I don't think you're getting paid adequately. He made all the adjustments. And then my pay was publicly disclosed. 
So I had no reason to ask for more pay because every dollar I was earning was publicly disclosed and the board decided what I would get. And I was always paid right. But there was that brief moment in my early years at PepsiCo where I simply didn't know how to do it. And I couldn't do it because culturally I didn't grow up that way. How do you tell somebody to ask for a raise today? I would just say go to HR first and say, look, I've been doing this job for a long time. My performance appraisals all say I'm awesome. I look at people around me who are getting raises and promotions. I'd like to understand why I'm being held back. But always know that when you have this conversation and if you get unsatisfactory responses, you should also be willing to walk out. You've turned to being an educator with your masterclass titled Leading with Purpose. What has it been like to hone in on all these things that you've learned as a business leader and all these lessons and and teach it in this way? You know, masterclass is a very unusual and interesting format. It's short bursts that give you just enough knowledge from somebody who's been through a long journey to get to the top. And you don't have to sit there for three hours studying one little module. You can get it in 20 minute bite-sized pieces. And it's one of those things where uh, you'll you leave that masterclass a bit more informed, a bit more educated, and perhaps a bit hungrier to go seek more knowledge in certain areas. That's my hope. I want to end by, you know, we're talking right now where it's a really hard time to be a leader. The, there's a lot of financial and economic turmoil. We're coming out of a pandemic. And when I think back, like you led PepsiCo through two financial crises. How did you anchor yourself in times of immense stress? And how did you kind of stay the course? What did you tap into? You have to start off, Carly, by saying, if you're going to be a leader in a company or any entity, and this put any time frame, if you're going to do that for 10 or 15 years, you are going to go through crisis. And typically, people who rise up to the top are people who are resilient, people who are students of whatever they're going to be experiencing, and can show calmness through a storm. First, study it. Study it and understand when is it going to turn around? What do I need to do now to insulate the rest of my businesses? How can I use it as an opportunity? Become a student. Just as during COVID, we all needed to understand the science and really understand how it's going to impact society and livelihoods and lives. Get into the detail. Once you get into the detail, then figure out an optimistic way forward. Because just going out and saying, oh my God, we're in trouble is not a leader's job. The leader's job is to say, yes, we have a problem, but let me tell you the options we have to navigate ourselves through the problem. That's what people are looking to the leader to do. Show calm. Show that you understand the issue, communicate it compellingly, and then provide some hope. Andrew, this has been utterly fascinating. I could talk to you for another hour. Thank you for the time and congratulations on the masterclass. Thanks, Carly. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast, Pop Cultured with the Skim, where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about. New episodes drop every Tuesday. 